We continue our sermon series titled Tension, looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, which will culminate on Easter Sunday as we preach from 1 Corinthians 15. All of this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians is full of tension. Last week in here, uh, Dr. Bill Baltonite preached about the tension between uh, the foolishness of the cross and the wisdom of the world and how there is tension between God's plan and God's purpose and the world. And Trevor did a great job talking about the tension uh, in the auditorium about quarrels and, and, and disagreements within the church. And today we're going to talk about even more tension and we'll work our way through this uh, letter. There'll be four different or five different tensions that we will deal with. Now, tension is, uh, in a simple way, means to be stretched tight. Uh, two, two opposing things pulling against each other. For me, I think about a bungee cord. A bungee cord creates some tension to hold things together or to keep things safe as you're traveling down the road in your pickup. I mean, I've got a bungee cord all the time ready just in case I need to hold something tight. Another example would be a guitar strings that you got to tighten those strings so that you can create some some beautiful music, some, some wonderful uh, melodies. So tension can be a good thing, right? And if I, when I'm fishing, uh, I like to keep a tight line uh, just so I can feel that, uh, that sensation of that fish taking uh, the line. I remember years ago fishing with my buddy Glenn Cribb down on the coast, and he was catching one fish after another, you know, and I just said, I don't, I don't get why you're catching all these fish. We're fishing for black drum, and he says, it's all in the line. You got to have the right line and the right feel. You need some tension in your line. Well, I remember a time when I was 16, when I had some tension in my life and I had, uh, I was 16 years old and I'd never kissed a girl and I made a mistake of telling my two friends that. And, uh, and so they had gone off to Haiti on a mission trip. And when they came back, they brought back with them a young lady they'd met from Pennsylvania and they were going to make this presentation to the church that, that afternoon or evening. And then we're going to have a Bible study at somebody's house. And I didn't know they had shared with this young lady from Pennsylvania that I had never had a first kiss. So I think she took it upon her as her mission uh, <laughs> after coming back from Haiti that I was her next mission project. Uh, and so she pursued me uh, all over that place that evening. And I was too tense to know what was going on. And, uh, and I kept praying. I'd ask her, you want to pray? Let's pray. Yeah. And, uh, and what was really embarrassing was after it was all over and I prevailed, um, and my, dad, my, my friends told me what they had done. They had set me up. And I was very embarrassed by that. I felt even more tension. And so just on the horizon was church camp. And I went to church camp to get close to Jesus and to kiss a girl. You know, it was kind of, you know, I just got to confess. I said, right, I'm going I'm to take, take care of this uh, because it needs to happen. And I'm kind of glad it did because um, it, uh, it, it certainly awakened something in me. Uh, and it prepared me that when I stood on the front porch at Lynn's house that first date, after we had known each other for several weeks and I finally got enough nerve to ask her out, and I knew, I knew that she was the one that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. And I knew that I better kiss her. And, you know, back in my mind, I thought about my two friends who tried to set me up 
and church camp, all that flashed in my mind. And so I said to Lynn, let's pray. <laughs> and uh, before I said amen, I kissed her. You know, I just got to get it out of the way. So anyway, a little tension there. You know, there's tension in our lives, and we have to deal with those things. There's tension in the Bible. There's tension biblically and theologically. For example, there's tension between grace and works. The Bible says we're saved by grace, not by works. But then the Bible also says faith without works is dead. And so there's that wonderful tension between realizing that the gift of God is free, it's grace, but then when we find grace, we've got to go to work to show God how much we are thankful for his grace. There's, there's tension between being a saint and being a sinner. When we become believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we're declared saints, but we're still sinners, right? All of us in this room are sinners, and we're striving to sin less, right? I mean, it's really hard to be sinless. It's a tension between being sinless, but we certainly should be striving with God's help through the power of the Holy Spirit to sin less and less in our journey with Christ. So tension between those two places. Now, there is also tension between the church, the body of Christ, the people of God, and the world in which we live in. And we're experiencing a lot of that tension more and more. What what I mean by the church, I mean the church are the people who believe in God and who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That, by definition, is the church. The people of God who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And the world will be described as those who may or may not believe in God, but have not yet surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And, and here's the reality, is that the church, the people of God, are in the world, right? And there are sometimes, there are people in the world, and there should be, people in the world who are in the church. Because our, our goal, our passion is to reach those who don't know Jesus Christ and, and to share with the world the love of God. But there's this tension. And in John 15, Jesus said, if you belong to the world, then the world would love you as its own. But I chose you from this world, and you do not belong to it, and that is why the world hates you. Now, those are strong words from Jesus. He says, if you're going to be one of my followers as a disciple of me, the world is not going to like that. There's going to be some tension with you and the world. And one of the struggles the church has today is the church wants to, everybody in the world to like it. But Jesus said, it's not going to happen. There's going to be tension with the church and the world. I love this illustration that, that, that Christians, the church, are like the Gulf Stream, which is in the ocean, yet it's not part of the ocean. It's this mysterious current that defies the mighty Atlantic, ignores its tides, flows steadily upon its own course, its color is different when you get to the Gulf Stream. It's, it's a deeper blue. Its temperature is different, being warmer. Its direction is different because it flows from south to north. It's in the ocean, but it's not part of the ocean. And, and what's even more unique about the Gulf Stream, it's full of life. It's where you go fish to. You go 90 miles off the of South Carolina coast to get to the Gulf Stream. And you go through miles and miles and miles and miles of fishless waters 
till you get to the Gulf Stream. And my friends, that's a great illustration how we in the church are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are different than those who have not chosen to make Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior. Now, here in Corinth, as Paul is writing this letter, he's planted a church right in the midst of one of the most corrupt, immoral cultures of his time. See, the church in Corinth invaded the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They went right into the culture, into a corrupt place, uh, a place that was known for its uh, idol worship, known for its sexual promiscuity. There in Corinth, you had the Greek goddess Aphrodite and also the Roman counterpart, Venus. And they were prominent about love, beauty, pleasure, passion, prostitution, other sexual sins were part of the culture that the church invaded. Now, here's what we need to know and remember about what happened in Corinth. Paul spent a year and a half planting a church right in the middle of a pagan, ungodly, promiscuous culture. And because the church stayed true to the teachings of Jesus Christ, and because the church stayed true to believe in the power of the resurrection of Jesus, that church transformed that culture. That church became the official religion of the Roman Empire. What a tremendous change. Because the church did not back down what it believed, it held firm in the truth. And today, what we have is this. We have the culture that is now invading the church. The culture is invading the church. You know, in Corinth, the church was the new kid on the block. And they, they lived out their purpose in dynamic ways, grew in astronomical ways, and transformed the world they lived in. In today's world, in a post-Christian world, in an increasingly secular world, we're the old kids on the block. And the church is seen as being old-fashioned and out of touch with reality. And the culture is invading the church. And so the question I asked our staff this week, and I ask you this morning, as the church, the body of Christ, the people of God, will we take our cues from the society or will we take our cues from Scripture? That's what it boils down to. Are we going to chase the culture or are we going to be committed to Christ as revealed in Holy Scripture? Now, many of you are aware of this, and we've talked about this before, and there'll be even more conversation coming about it. There's a division coming within the United Methodist Church over the culture and over the debate and discussion of human sexuality, the debate and discussion of, of marriage and what does that mean. And these are the same issues that Paul deals with in his letter to the Corinthians. <clears throat> and one of the first thing he addresses in chapter 5, 6, and 7, which are all about um, the, the struggles we have in, in, in the culture, but also that invades the church. And, and he begins over here in, in chapter 5, and I'm going to read it from the paraphrased version of ch chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, I also received a report of scandalous sex within your church family, the kind that wouldn't be tolerated even outside the church. One of your men is sleeping with his stepmother. And you're so above it all that it doesn't even phase you. 
That's a pretty serious indictment, isn't it? You're so above it, it doesn't even phase you. Shouldn't this break your heart? Shouldn't it bring you to, to your knees in tears? Shouldn't this person and his conduct be confronted and dealt with? Now, now what, is, what is Paul calling out? He's calling out their pride and tolerance. Now, tolerance, like tension, can be a good thing. I'm not speaking against tolerance, but tolerance without spiritual discernment, without God's insight, without the guidance of Scripture, results in the inability to see sin as sin. The inability to call sin, sin, and then to justify it as okay, which is what is happening here in Corinth almost 2,000 years ago. If you go over into chapter 6 and verse 9, Paul says to the church, don't fool yourselves or don't be deceived by the culture. Don't get confused by the culture. Jesus also warned us about wolves in sheep's clothing. There will be those who will try to lead the church, the people of God, down the wrong path. So I want to go over several tensions as I, as I work our way through this text and getting to where we're going at the end. One of the tensions that happened in the first century uh, in the early church was something called Gnosticism. And, and what Gnosticism raised the question about, is the body good, the physical body good, or is the body bad? Is the body good or is the body bad? And Gnosticism was a heresy that denied the goodness, importance of the body, which led to the conclusion that you can do whatever you want with your body because it's not good. You know, and you live by impulse. And, and this body you have is going to, you know, go away one day. So just do with it whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Now, your heart, that's good. Your spirit, that's good. That's what's going to survive. So, so, so just go with your heart. Go with your feelings. Do what, feel what, feel what you do, feel what you want to do and do what you want to do. And, and, and ignore your body. And, and I think that we're running into a lot of that same sentiment today. Just do what you want to do. Your body's not going to last anyway. Doesn't matter. You know, I want to say this to you this morning. As we deal with all these supposedly uh, new ideas today, there's nothing new under the sun. We know that, right? There is nothing new under the sun. All these new controversies and new discussions going on in the, is all rehyped, renamed things the church, the body of, of God, the people of God have been dealing with since the beginning. It's just been kind of renamed and redefined, etc. Now, what does the Bible teach about the body, the physical body? Well, the Bible teaches the body is good, that this body is good, that we're made in the image of God. And that God chose to come to earth, how? In a cat, in a dog, in a tree? No, he came in a body. He came in human flesh so that we could recognize what God was like. And that his body, once it was crucified on a cross and buried in a tomb, it, it, decay began to set in. What happened on Easter Sunday? His body was resurrected and took on new life. And the Bible teaches us that one day our bodies will be resurrected. We we'll have a new body, and the body is good according to Scripture. But what's bad? What's bad is our hearts. Our hearts are defiled. In fact, uh, Jeremiah says it this way: the human heart 
is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? And when we become a believer in Jesus Christ, what does he give us? He doesn't give us a new body. Some of us wish he would, <laughs> you know, but he gives us a new heart. You know, I preached a funeral yesterday for Jack Wilkie. And Jack Wilkie's body was wore out, but guess what? One day, Jack Wilkie, whenever the resurrection fully occurs, his spirit is with the, with the Lord now. He's going to get a new body. It won't be broken anymore. It'll be a resurrected body. That's good news, right? And so the Bible teaches that the body is good, and, 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 and we should take care of it. And so the next tension I ask you, who does your body belong to? Does your body belong to us, to you? Or to God. Who does this belong to? Well, Paul gets into it here, and I'm going to go kind of work my way up from the bottom of the text. Beginning with verse 12, Paul writes in chapter 6, You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. Can we get an amen to that? Yeah. You know, that, you know, that sin less thing? How many of you have already broken what you said you were going to give up, give up for Lent? Come on now. You know, I was not going to eat after 9 o'clock. That's one of the things I was going to not do. And the other night, I got home at 8.55. <laughs> and boy, I ate good. Uh, I'm trying, though. I'm trying. I did better the last couple of days. But there, you say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything, Right? You say food was made for the stomach and stomach for the food. This is true. Though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord. And the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one with her? For the scriptures say, now what, what is Paul referring when he says for the scriptures say? He's referring back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. For the scriptures say the two are united into one, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one in spirit with him. Verse, uh, t uh, the next verse is run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Who does your body belong to if you're a follower of Jesus? It belongs to God. Now, that's creates some tension <laughs> in our world today because we believe that we can do whatever we want with our body. It doesn't matter. With whomever we want to do it with, it doesn't matter. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches your body is good, and it belongs to God. Once we give our hearts to God, we surrender all of ourselves to God. And part of the reasons we struggle in our walk is we don't give God everything. We might give him our fingers, but we don't give him our hand. <laughs> we might give him a day, but we don't give him every day. 
He calls for full surrender. Now, Paul goes on then in the rest of the text here and goes over a catalog of sins that we struggle with. In verse 9, Paul says, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourself or don't be deceived. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that. Anybody here relate to that verse? Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, in this catalog of sin, Paul identifies 10 sins here in chapter 5 and also here we just read in chapter 6. Sins that Christians are called to avoid. Stealing, greed, drunkards, abuse of alcohol, swindlers, slanders, foul language, etc. He names six sins that are non-sexual. I want you to hear that. Six sins that are non-sexual. And then he names four sins that are sexual. And they're basically uh, sins that are either heterosexual sins or homosexual sin. And so the... And why does Paul do that? Why does Paul put these sins together? I believe Paul is saying that sin is sin. It doesn't matter whether it's sexual sin or non-sexual sin. It's sin. Sin is sin. He makes no difference between any of the ten. But there is a uniqueness, he says, about sexual sin because it is sin against our bodies and sin against other people's bodies. I was shocked and appalled by what was reported in the paper this week in the interview that former President Bill Clinton gave about his reasons or his rationalization for his affair when he was in the White House. It was something to help relieve his anxiety. When we sin, we sin against our bodies. But what about the young woman's anxiety. We live in this world where I can do whatever I want, for whatever reason I want to do it. And sexual sin in itself usually begins as a private sin behind closed doors between two consenting adults and nobody's going to get hurt, right? The problem is when we shut the door, we're leaving God on the other side. We're leaving God out of the equation and doing whatever we want to do. But what happens when we do that is private sin eventually becomes public sin. Private sin becomes public sin. And, and, and sins in, in the nature of sexual sins that demoralize families and destabilizes society. Don't we see evidence of that all over the place? How private sins like pornography that nobody knows about supposedly but it comes out in the open and demoralizes a family. I can't tell you the number of times I've talked with couples who that was what demoralized the marriage. It was a private thing until it became public. And then it demoralized and destabilizes society. 
Paul uses the word pornoneia to describe sexual sin. It's where we get the word pornography. It appears 24 times in the New Testament. And basically it means this. It's any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. That's how Paul defines the meaning of pornoneia. And 24 different times in the New Testament, it, it's mentioned in various ways. But bottom line, it's any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage as defined by Scripture. And let me be clear on this. That within the, the church, the body of Christ all over the world, we have a much larger problem with heterosexual sin than we have with homosexual sin. Let's be clear about that. There's a huge problem with adultery. There's a huge problem with pornography. There's an even huge, greater problem with human trafficking brought on by the need to have private sin. And so I want you to know that as United Methodists, we affirm what Paul teaches about heterosexual marriage. And we believe this as United Methodists, and we're not alone in this. There's other churches, movements that believe just like we believe, that fidelity in heterosexual, we believe in fidelity in heterosexual marriage and celibacy in singleness. There's two, two sides of a coin. Celibacy in singleness and fidelity in marriage. And there's tension with that, trust me. The United Methodist Church is going to split over this one issue. We'll come apart, more than likely. And we'll hear more about that in the, in the weeks and months ahead. And I want you to know that as your pastor, I'm going to stand with that message. That we believe in fidelity and heterosexual marriage and celibacy and singleness. But let me also give you this tension. That in the midst of this struggle that is divisive, we do not condemn the person but we don't condone the practice. There is nobody, all of us in this church are sinners, are we not? Saved by the grace of God. We don't stand at any door, any pew, and condemn anyone. Everyone is welcome in this church because all of us are a work in progress. All of us need the grace of God in our life. And we follow the example of Jesus in this way. When Jesus encountered the woman who was caught in adultery, who was about to be stoned to death by the religious folks, the Pharisees. Jesus said what? Let him without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they dropped their rocks because they all knew they were guilty of sin. And what did he say to the woman? He said, where are your accusers? I don't condemn you either. And go and what? And sin no more. Go and, 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 and change your life and live a new life. He didn't condemn her, but he also didn't condone her practice. Another example of that is when Jesus met a woman at the well. A woman who was there at the middle of the day because she had been condemned by her community. And why was she condemned? Because she had been married five times. And the man that she was currently with was not her husband. And Jesus saw in her an emptiness, a longing that was not being fulfilled in a practice of marrying many people. And he says, I want to give you some water, some living water that will cause you to stop thirsting for the wrong things. I want you to go and, in essence, and sin no more. <clears throat> I want you to go and, 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 and do live into God's best for your life. 
So that means, friends, if we're going to follow the example of Jesus in the tension between the culture and the church, is it means we need to change our posture toward people, but not change our position. We can change our posture. We don't want to be the ones throwing stones at people. We certainly don't want to be condemning anyone because Jesus didn't offer condemnation. So can we do that? Can we, can we change our posture without changing our position? I believe that the position is a non-negotiable. I believe it's clear in what Paul taught and what Genesis taught and what Revelation teaches that it is, it is clear about our position. And, and today, I, was, and I, I want to not miss this because I know this is a real struggle. There's a real struggle between our personal feelings and biblical principles. And personal feelings can cause us to compromise biblical principle. Isn't that right? We're all torn by that, are we not? We all have people that we love deeply that are struggling in areas. And, and, and we've got to be careful that we don't allow those feelings we have to compromise our biblical principles. Jesus didn't back off what he believed. He loved people enough to tell them the truth. And he did it with grace and dignity. And, and so should we. Now, as we look at this tension, there's a tension between all of us in our past and our presence. And, and again, in verse 11, Paul says these words, some of you were once like that. All of us were one time lost in sin, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. All of us in this room were at one time, if you're a follower of Jesus, lost in our sins. But when you called upon the name of Jesus Christ, you were cleansed. What does that mean? Is that that what Jesus did on the cross, his blood washes away our sins. It's the symbolism of baptism, of being washed, made clean, forgiven, made right, made holy, it says, set apart, sanctified. Now, again, this is where it gets tension because according to Scripture here in Corinthians and other places, if you're a person who follows God, you're set apart. You're, you're to be a little bit different. And if nobody can tell you're a Christian, maybe that's a concern. God doesn't have secret agent Christians. You know, under, he doesn't want undercover Christians. Now, unless you're in China where you might be put to death for being a Christian, you might have to keep it kind of quiet. But not here in the U.S. That's one of the reasons we're in the shape we're in in this country because we've, we've been too quiet. We set back because our fear of being rejected. You were cleansed. You were made holy. You were, made, you were justified. You were made right with God. Now, in all of this, I believe this with all my heart. I've staked my ministry on this, that only Jesus Christ can satisfy people's emptiness. Only Jesus Christ can satisfy. Only the cross can save. And only the resurrection can give us the power to defeat sin and death. You can't do this on your own strength. It's impossible. We don't have it within us. Paul believes that God gives every Christian enough power to resist sinful desires, even if they continue to have them. Did you, did you hear that? Even when we continue to have them, there is power to resist them. What did we pray a few minutes ago? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Paul believed 
that Jesus Christ has the power to free believers from its attractions so they have a choice about their actions. All of us have attractions, but Christ gives us the power to make choices about our actions. I love what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 10. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. Now, I'm going to stand on God's word there. When God's word tells me that the temptations will not be greater than I can stand, he goes on to say, when you're tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. And how can we endure? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 and 17, say it this way. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, say it with me, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. This teaching is a difficult teaching, and it's only made possible through the resurrection of Jesus, the power of the resurrection. So let me talk just very quickly about the, the tension between creation of God and the culture, especially in regarding marriage. Why did Paul hold marriage in such high regard? Why did he, why did he confront the church here in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7 about marriage and defining marriage as he defined it. And why do we stand on that today? Why do I, you know, it, look, if we want to get along with the culture and get along, we would just, just say, okay, whatever. But why do we stand on our belief in heterosexual marriage? Because for Jesus and the Jewish folks, marriage is a celebration of the original creation that God established in the beginning. I want you to hear this. The Bible begins with marriage, that God made us male and female, giving us the mandate to multiply and be fruitful, that a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Jesus affirms that. When Jesus was asked about divorce, he says, this is what God intended in the beginning. And he said, he quoted what Moses had written, a man shall leave his father and mother and his wife shall cleave together and become one. Now, Jesus had the opportunity right there to redefine marriage, but he didn't do that. Instead, he reinforced marriage. I, I believe that's important. And, and then you take the, the Bible, let's go a little further. How does the Bible end? Well, let me back up and say this, that throughout the, the Gospels, Jesus is described as what? The groom. And the church is described as what? The bride. Male and female. That was what Jesus came to talk about. Now, how does the Bible end in the book of Revelation? Chapter 20 and chapter 21 at the end of the Bible. It ends with a marriage. It ends with a wedding feast. It ends with the consummation of the kingdom when the bride and the groom become one. So when you think about heterosexual marriage, I want you to think about it in all of the Bible. Don't pick out your favorite verse or your least favorite verse. Take it from Genesis to Revelation. And see, that's is God's creation plan. That's his idea. He made them different by creating them male and female for each other. Two sexes that are different but yet complement each other because man alone or woman alone cannot procreate. Can we agree with that? It just can't happen because that's how God designed it. That's his creation plan. Now, we can divert that and we can kind of pervert that 
But that's how God created it, to fulfill his creation. And, and, and about this whole sexual relationship thing, I say this to young couples all the time that I'm doing premarital counseling. That part of your relationship is God's wedding gift to you. It's God's gift to you. He says, go and you, and what does he want you to do? Three things. He wants you to glorify God with your actions. He wants you to procreate and he wants you to recreate. He wants you to enjoy this gift that he has given you. You know, I don't think we can understand all of this. I don't understand, think we can understand the confusion in the world unless we understand the book of Genesis. Chapter 1 and 2, you have the creation. You have God establishing a relationship. And what happens in chapter 3 is humankind personified in Adam and Eve turned away from God and lost the relationship. It lost the equality of men and women and explains why the world is a mess, why the world is full of tension, why there's suffering, why wars happen, why marriages break down, why we need a savior and why we long for a new creation. Instead of reflecting the image of God, it reflects the realities of a fallen world where God's norms are constantly broken. And then this tension, you know, we live in a democracy. I'm grateful to live in a democracy, aren't you? I love a democracy. I love being a citizen of the United States of America. But there is a difference between civil rights and covenant rights. And in this country, in a democracy, we have civil rights. And I'm not speaking against civil rights. That's the dilemma, the challenge of being in a democracy. But I am defending the right of covenant marriage that was established by God. And when this democracy is long gone, the creation of God will still be in, in effect. And, and we're going to stand on covenant right, not civil rights. I'm not about changing the Supreme Court. I'm not about that. I'm about defending the covenant right of marriage. We are under great pressure to abandon that, as you know, in our Western society. But I believe we've got to stand firm. I believe that Paul is wiser than we are. I believe this is smarter than we are. And I believe that the traditional view of the church for 2,000 years is still relevant. And also, I know we do not stand alone. There are millions of believers all around this country who are Orthodox, who believe in Scripture. There are Protestants and Catholics that stand with us. There are millions in the global church who stand with us. And if we, not for our African brothers and sisters and Philippine brothers and sisters and Korean brothers and sisters and Eastern Europe brothers and sisters, the Methodist church would have been lost a long time ago. And I'm not going to abandon them now. I'm going to stand with them too because they've stood with us for a long time. I want to close with this picture. This is a picture of an animal that you maybe have never seen before. It's a cute picture, isn't it? That's an ermine. You say, what is an ermine? An ermine is a weasel, right? And, it's, and, it's, and it's, it was highly sought after in the late 1800s, early 1900s for fur because its fur was so precious and made beautiful fur coats or whatever they made with fur. But you know how the trappers would catch an ermine? An ermine was so proud of its coat that it didn't want to get dirty. And so the trappers would put dirt in front of the ermine's cave. And when the ermine got to its cave, it wouldn't go in because it didn't want to get dirty. And so the theme of the ermine was, is I'd rather be dead than defiled. <laughs> I'd rather die than get dirty. I want to say to you, the church, will we be devoted or deceived? Will we be determined or defeated? Will we be decisive or be distracted? 
I want to stand on the Word of God. And I want to stand firm. I want to be decisive, not divisive. And I believe we can. We're going to close with singing a great hymn that reminds us of the beauty of the earth because I want us to think about the Creator. The culture didn't set all this in place. The Creator set all this in place. And what did he say about it? He said, it's good. This is good. And you're good. And my plan is good. Can we celebrate what he has done? What God has put in place and live in his creation and bring him glory. Be image bearers. You are made in the image of God to bear his image, to lead other people to him. Let's stand together and sing.